welcome. For the next handful of weeks, we will be in the book of Matthew. We're setting aside Philippians for a little bit. I enjoy, invite you to join me in the book of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 26 today. Uh, chapter 26, beginning in verse 47. We're going to start with today the betrayal of Jesus Christ. Next week, the uh, crucifixion followed by the burial and culminating with the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. So rather than read our entire passage at once, uh, we're going to take it in three blocks today because we're actually taking three narratives that all have a, a similar theme in them. We're going to see today how Jesus lived out uh, Old Testament prophecy about him. Uh, specifically, I was thinking of Isaiah 53 verse 7. Speaking of the Messiah who would come, Isaiah wrote these words, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We'll see how Jesus goes through these betrayals and doesn't defend himself, doesn't make any real defensive comments at all. Have you ever been betrayed? Probably a good way to put everyone in a bad mood at the beginning of a sermon, isn't it? Have you ever had someone who should have had your back, who should have given you the benefit of the doubt and they didn't? They believed a lie about you or, or uh, some gossip or, or they heard a rumor or misunderstood something and took it in a way that you didn't mean at all. I've been betrayed. Zero out of ten would not recommend it. And if you've been betrayed, you know what I'm talking about. We often think of betrayal coming from someone we have a close relationship with. The closer the relationship, the deeper that betrayal cuts. So a family member can betray us more profoundly than uh, a work acquaintance. A church member can, can betray us more profoundly than a neighbor across the street. But really, betrayal can come from anyone who ought to be trustable, trustworthy, that's why it's especially heinous when a school teacher abuses a child or, or when there is a murder at the hand of a police officer. That, that is much more outrageous than other crimes. Someone who should be trustable turned out not to be. And it doesn't matter that there are millions of teachers and police officers who are trustable when you have that one, right? In today's passage, we are going to see Jesus being betrayed by Judas. You saw that coming but also by the religious leaders who should have recognized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah that they were looking for. We're going to see Jesus betrayed by Peter. And then we'll see how Jesus fulfilled prophecy of these scriptures in his arrest, through his trial, and into uh, all that, that Jesus did in, in these betrayals. So I invite you to follow along with me in Matthew chapter 26, we begin reading in verse 47. So Jesus had been praying with 
the disciples. Remember, they kept falling asleep, and uh, he's, he's arousing them, waking them up this last time, and, and, and tells them to be alert because the betrayer is coming. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. We're going to see throughout all three of these narratives, all three of these events that happened leading up to the crucifixion that Jesus remained in complete control. He was absolutely in control of every moment. He was not surprised by this betrayal. If you back up a verse before the passage that we read, verse 46, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He knew that Judas was going to do what Judas was going to do. Why a kiss? Why did Judas give Jesus this, this greeting? Now, it's a little more awkward in our culture, but in that culture, that was how you shook hands. You'd give a little kiss on the cheek. Why that? Why couldn't he have just pointed out Jesus in some way? I don't know. I do know this. The time of year that this was, this was as the festival of the Jews was beginning, Jerusalem was packed. There were lots of people, thousands upon thousands of people, more than normal. And Jesus looked like your average guy. So uh, the, the leaders who were really after Jesus, they needed someone to point him out. The council needed someone to lead them to Jesus so they could have him arrested. And so Judas fit the bill because Judas loved silver more than he loved his Savior. May that never be said of us, that we love money more than our God. But Judas's love for silver led him to be this despicable. When reading the, the, the stories of Jesus, the accounts of how Jesus went about life, 
and specifically as he went about the last week of his life, it's helpful to read all of the Gospels, to read through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, because they all give similar pictures but a little different, uh, little different details here and there. And I like what John adds in John chapter 18. So I'm going to read verses 3 through 6 of John 18, showing that Jesus was indeed in control as he was being arrested. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. You can see the scene, can't you? The mob has gathered. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. I don't know why Matthew left that out. (laughs) But as they're coming to him, now in your English translation, it probably says, I am he, or I'm the one you're looking for. The Greek, it's I am. He uses the name of God to say who he is. And at the name of God, they all fall down flat as they're coming to arrest him. They get up, they do a retake. Who are you looking for? He says, I'm I'm the one. And they arrest him. Jesus was always God. He was always in control of every moment. He was not taken by force. Instead, he willingly surrendered himself. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, uh, you'll you'll see all sorts of times where the the officials are trying to arrest him or the crowd is angry at him and and want to have him killed or, or otherwise seized. And every time he just gets away effortlessly. Why? Because it was not his time, and that's how Scripture records it, because it was not yet his time. It's now his time. And there is nothing that's actually going to stop him from doing what God wants him to do. So John records this show of power of, at the name of Jesus, everyone just falling down flat and having to get back up and start over. In the book of Luke, Luke records the miracle. Luke chapter 20, verses 50 and 51. I'm sorry, Luke 22, verses 50 and 51. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now we got that verse in Matthew, didn't we? And we know from other passages that it's Peter who does this. Verse 51, but Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. At the name of Jesus, everyone fell down as though forced in worship. And as Peter, getting a little ahead of himself, takes out, it says his sword, uh, the word really is more of a dagger, something that everyone would have with them. In, in our day, we'd call it a pocket knife. He takes out his blade, and he, in, in this, uh, this careless moment, pulls it out, and clumsily lunges for whoever happens to be in front of him. It's the servant of the high priest. We learn his name is Malchus. 
And he cuts off his ear, and Jesus says, no, we're not doing it this way. And he heals the guy's ear. He just miraculously does that. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, how could you be Malchus and continue with this charade of arresting Jesus when you know what happened to your ear? Jesus performed an indisputable, indisputable miracle right there in front of them all. If they were actually looking for evidence that Jesus was God the Son, that he was the, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah that they were looking for, there's evidence right there. You see, these officials weren't looking for evidence. They weren't looking for truth. They were looking for their desired outcome. So when we take the accounts of the arrest from, from the four Gospels, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get an accurate picture that Jesus was in complete control. The timing was of God. And Jesus mentioned it as much in verses 55 and 56 that uh, that day after day he had been teaching in the temple. Why didn't they come and seize him then? God's plan was always for the true Lamb of God to be the fulfillment of the Passover. Do you remember the Passover Lamb? That's why people were in town. They were gathered for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed it. The Passover was the celebration of their exit from Egypt. How God had changed the Pharaoh's heart. And how did he do that? He changed Pharaoh's heart by killing the firstborn of every household in the land of Egypt, except for those who had the blood on the doorposts and the top of the doorframe. So only the Hebrew children, only the Hebrew people were rescued from that great death, from the death angel. God's plan was always for the Passover lamb to point forward to Jesus. And so Jesus had to be crucified on the day that the Passover lambs were killed. So that's where we are. Now, in our reckoning of time, we start a new day at midnight. The Hebrew people start their day at sunset before. And so at sunset is when Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover feast that was recorded earlier in the book of Matthew. And, and Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper that we know of as the communion. All that happened early on Friday morning. We would call it Thursday evening, but they would call it Friday. So on that same day, within the 24-hour time period before the next sunset, Jesus would not only have celebrated the Passover with his, uh, with his disciples, he would have also become the Passover by being sacrificed for us the next morning. Jesus was not taken by force or surprise. He could have just walked away. He had the, the power. Now, he was obeying God, so he wasn't going to do that, but he had the capacity to just walk away. The scripture says here that, that he could have called legions of angels. The old song goes, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set me free. The scripture actually paints a more powerful picture than that. A legion was 6,000 soldiers, so 12 legions is not 10,000. 72,000. The number is not the point. The point that Jesus is making is at, at just 
one ask of the Father. We could have an insurmountable company of angels here to rescue me. I don't need your dagger, Peter. Put it away. Jesus willingly submitted to God's plan. So we have the pretentious uh, trial coming up. We've had this betrayal by Judas. We have this pretentious trial coming up. And that begins in verse 57. I invite you to read along with me. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the, the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him and slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Jesus remained silent in the face of these false proceedings. And Matthew's clear, uh, they were looking for false witnesses. And they had trouble finding them, actually. These proceedings were illegitimate. They were at the wrong time. Jewish court was never to happen at night. Remember, this is happening in, in the, the dead of night. We know because, well, if you glance ahead, we end with Peter and the rooster crowing. Roosters crow at the first sight of the sun... So this is all happening in the dark of night. These proceedings were at the wrong time. It was an illegal court. The verdict was illegal. It was not legal to produce a, an execution verdict in just one day. Because they, they recognized in their law that you could very easily stir up a crowd and, and come up with a, a guilty verdict in, in a very short time. And so that was forbidden. You had to stretch it out. It had to be over the course of many days. And even though these proceedings, these, uh, these court uh, hearings were illegal and illegitimate, Jesus remained silent. He remained silent in the face of false accusation. Uh, the prosecution had no teeth. It had no case against Jesus. Many people gave testimony, but according to uh, Jewish law, according to the scripture, in order for an accusation to stick, you must have two or three witnesses that testify to the same thing. And everyone that kept testifying about Jesus kept saying different things. Finally, there were two 
who claimed that Jesus said that he would rebuild the temple in three days. And did Jesus say that? Yeah, he absolutely did. Is that a condemnable crime? <laughs> no, not by any means. Verses 63 and 64, uh, please look at them. Uh, Jesus condemns them actually with their own words. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you, I insist by the name of God that you answer me, is, is in essence what he says. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. That's just weird. That's a weird response in English. What did he mean by that? You have said so. In fact, Jesus says a very similar thing to Pilate. In the next chapter, verse 11, uh, Jesus is standing before Pilate, uh, before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, you have said so. Again, kind of an awkward response in English. The short version of what this means is, yes. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. It's an affirmative response. In 26 verse 63, when the high priest says, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus answers, yes. The long version is, what you have said is correct, but there's more to it. But the words you chose were correct. Or, or another way of putting it is, uh, that's your phrase, or that's the way you put it. In responding to the high priest, Jesus immediately then quotes a kind of a conglomeration of scripture, a little bit from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and a little bit from Psalm 110, verse 1, by saying, But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is telling this quote-unquote court that after today, when they see him next time, it will be when Jesus is in his full glory. This is what made them angry. This is what made them recognize Jesus as being blasphemous. Now, Jesus was not being blasphemous because he is God the Son. It's not blasphemy to call yourself that when you actually are. The high priest didn't see it that way. So they have him condemned. Finally, we have the denial by Peter in verse 69 and following. Please read along. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went outside to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly.
just like the arrest, if we look at the other Gospels, we get a, a fuller picture, a clearer image of what happened. Here's Luke's account of the same event, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 60. Talking about Peter's third denial. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The details Luke gives is that while he was, while words were still on his mouth, while that third denial was still on his lips, the rooster crowed. He's in this courtyard. The rooster crowed. He hears the crow, and he's in this in this courtyard. Looks up and makes eye contact with Jesus, who's being interrogated by the high priest. Can you imagine? Peter's heart at that moment. Just a few hours earlier, they had eaten the Last Supper together. In fact, if you're still in Matthew 27, you can back up to chapter 26, uh, verse 31. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. Again, they're together. He has instituted the last, the, he's instituted the Lord's Supper. He's given clues that Judas is going to betray him, and so that's kind of put some unease into the crowd. And now he tells them, you all will fall away. Verse 32, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. They're very united in this supper. They're very united in this time. Peter was ready to go to battle for Jesus. And he demonstrates it. Cuts off Malchus's ear. By the way, Peter probably wasn't aiming for his ear. He missed. Peter was ready to, to go to battle for Jesus. And where is he now? Now, to his credit, he stayed nearby, following the crowd to see what would become of these late night hearings. John is with Jesus. But none of the other disciples have stayed nearby. Peter was at least there. But Jesus' haunting words rang true. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Did you notice how Peter's denials increased in intensity? In verse 70, Peter feigns ignorance. He says, I, I don't know what you mean. In verse 72, he promises, I do not know the man. But in verse 74, he invokes a curse, basically saying, let me be accursed if I know him. 
And while these words were on his lips, the rooster crows and Jesus looks at Peter. Scripture says he went out and wept bitterly. He knew what he had done. He knew. We've looked at three separate betrayals. Judas, one of the 12, he gave up Jesus to the authorities, to the mob, led him right to him. We have uh, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders who were charged with keeping God's word by learning it, by doing it, by helping others to learn and do the word of God. They had all the prophecies of the Messiah and all the proof that Jesus was actually fulfilling these prophecies. He was actually living out what the Old Testament predicted would happen. And rather than confirming Jesus is the Messiah, they orchestrated a false trial to get their desired outcome. That Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. So then they could pass it off to Pilate to carry it out. And the third betrayal was by Peter. Judas was with Jesus. The Sanhedrin should have known better. But Peter was not only with Jesus like Judas, Peter was one of the inner circle. If you can have a circle of four people, uh, it was Peter, James, and John with Jesus. That was the inner circle. Judas's betrayal is always held up as the absolute worst, but honestly, I think Peter's was worse. Judas was always a fake. He was the one in charge of the money bag, and he was known to take a little bit out for his own needs from time to time. Judas was always a fake. The religious zealots always had it out for Jesus, but Peter, Peter was the real deal. Peter's the one that, that stepped out in faith from the boat and walked on water with Jesus for a moment. Peter was close to Jesus. Peter was told specifically that he would be key to establishing the church. And he was. Learn that in the book of Acts. And here Peter has completely disavowed himself from even knowing Jesus. I know I've been preaching one verse at a time the last several weeks. And today's like 30. <laughs> it's a different book. It's a different style of writing. It's a narrative. It tells us the events, how they unfolded. What do we get from these three betrayals? I've said it. I'm going to keep saying it. Jesus was in control. He knew everything that was going to take place. He knew the precise moment that that rooster was going to yell he knew exactly where Peter would be down in the courtyard so he could look over at him. And even though he knew everything that would take place, even though he was in complete control, he went anyway. Isn't that awesome? I mean, when we know something difficult is going to come, something painful is going to come, 
if we can avoid it, we do. Right? I mean, there's sometimes where we just have to grit our teeth and go through it. But if we can avoid pain, we do. What Jesus was going through was far greater than any pain or suffering that you and I will ever imagine. And he had the power to get out of it, but he chose to go anyway. Just as importantly, when God forgives, he forgives completely. Now, we don't see that in the passage, but we know what happens later, don't we? We know that Peter, I mean, this is a spoiler alert, it's okay. Peter, who was so close, who has fallen so far away by this, this triple denial, the one who betrays him so forcefully, is the same man named Peter who first preached in the book of Acts, establishing the church. And the church grew to thousands because of Peter's preaching. Peter's foundational to the start of church, and it's only because of Jesus' sacrifice covering all of Peter's sins. Peter's going to experience complete forgiveness and restoration. All because Jesus went through with it. I don't know what you need to take away from today's message. I know that as I was studying this week, just overwhelmed in love for my God who would do this for me. See, when you have Jesus as your Savior living in you, he helps you recognize your sin more acutely than you did before. And, and the more that you grow in your Christian walk, the more you're going to see that sin and recognize its weight. When I recognize the sin that Jesus died for, it's overwhelming. Because he did it because he loves me. And he did it for you because he loves you and he, he doesn't care what sins you've committed. It doesn't matter how many times you've promised, oh, I'm not going to do that again. And you turn around and you do it again. He forgives. And he wants to. This is our Lord and Savior. Maybe adoration is your response to this text like it was for me. Maybe you need to remember that God is in control of every moment. Every seemingly little detail of life, God is in control. He is sovereign over all of it. Or maybe you need to experience God's complete forgiveness for the sins that you've committed because you haven't actually turned to him in faith yet. Whatever your response is, take it to him. Pray a prayer of thanksgiving for your salvation or of praise for uh, his all-consuming grace or, or, or a prayer of contrition 
confessing your sin that, uh, that you're so easily able to see sin in others but not your own heart. Whatever it is, turn to him in prayer because of what Jesus has done for us in this text today. Would you pray with me? Centuries before the event, the word recorded that Jesus would be oppressed, that he would be violently treated, that he would be unfairly treated, that he would be sacrificed for the sins of people who hated him, but that he would respond with silence at their accusations. Father, as we read the details of the events and, and how, uh, how these things unfolded, it really does cause us to stand in amazement that Jesus would do that for us. He didn't deserve any of it. He didn't deserve to be spat upon, to be lied about, as we'll see in upcoming passages, to be beaten and ultimately crucified. Father, he didn't deserve that. We did. He knew it was coming. And he went anyway. Thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you would provide the way of salvation through the precious Lamb of God. Lord, I pray that the truth of his sacrifice would impact our lives afresh today throughout this series as we stand in awe of your amazing grace. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would take root in our hearts and continue to do its work in Jesus' name.